According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we are in Philippians chapter 1. We're approaching the end of the chapter as we're working down through verses 27 through 30 now. Verses 27 through 30, Paul says, only. One of the biggest onlys anywhere in the Bible. He says, only. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay. Oh, is that all? <laughs> okay, only. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. All right, so that's where we are. Let me just read two more verses, finish the chapter here. Verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And so that's where we are and what we're looking at. Before we get started this morning, remember God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. If we sit here out of fellowship, it does us no good whatsoever. So let's take a moment of silent prayer, giving us the opportunity to confess our sins if we need to confess our sins and be restored to fellowship. And even if we don't have to confess our sins, to humble ourselves under His authority. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning, for Your truth, for Your faithfulness, for the blessing we have to assemble together in, uh, in this place. We call upon Your faithfulness, Father, to, uh, to bless our time, to open our eyes, to bless our study. Father, also that You would hedge, hedge us about and protect us. We do want to pray for that uh, Baptist church there in Sutherland Springs. And Father, I don't know what they're going to be doing this morning, but I can't imagine. And so I just pray for that pastor and his wife and for that flock and that uh, on this first Sunday after the events of last week be, uh, be powerful Father, be merciful and uh, glorify your Son in all things. So we give you the praise and the glory Father in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alright. Yeah, how, uh, how do you come back to church on a Sunday after last week? And there's, uh, there's a circumstance. So please lift him up in prayer and that pastor and his wife. And remember they lost their daughter as well. So uh, they've got uh, their own struggles and, uh, and that. Alright. So um, dealing with to live as Christ and to die as gain and this conundrum that uh, Paul has had. He kind of talked himself through the process as uh, he went back and forth in verses 22 through 26. And so this was part of the outline that we looked at under uh, 0.5. I guess I can put that slide up one more time. I'm not going to reteach any of these subpoints or anything, but we went through under 0.5, we went through the back and forth, the conundrum. And Paul would go, well, on the one hand this, on the other hand that, on the one hand, and then he, you know, he, he runs out of hands because he keeps going back and forth so many times because he's pressed. He wants to go and meet with the Lord. Who wouldn't? I mean, heaven is glorious and the presence of Christ is is just glorious and the, and being away from our bodies of sin is glorious and so many uh, so many reasons to be with Christ because that is very much better to die is gain and it is better but verse 22 says if i am to live on in the flesh this will mean fruitful labor for me so staying here means labor continued physical life means the fruit of labor so if he gives me one more day what do i want to use that one more day doing bearing fruit. I want to be laboring for the gospel of Christ. I want to be serving Him in my giftedness and my ministry pursuits and my effects. All right, And this is what's presented as a motivation for living longer as opposed to other motivations that people come up with. A whole lot of human excuses for why they want to stick around or things they want to see or things they want to do. They got a bucket list. They got something they want to, they want to check off their list before they, before they kick the bucket. I guess is how bucket list got started. And uh, so they got a long list of things they want to do, and you, you look at those lists and you think, well, fruit bearing is not on that list. <laughs> okay? And the Apostle Paul made that his one and only item on his bucket list uh, in, in this development here. 
Anyway, describes it as a lust, describes it as an epithumia. And uh, when he says, I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the lust, the desire to depart. And that's uh, you know the strongest of all desires, the epithumeo of all desires, uh, lusting to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And so being squeezed from two directions with the lust to depart and be with Christ, and then of course the lust to stay and bear fruit for uh, the uh, Philippian saints. Putting his own desires aside, remaining in the flesh is more necessary for the Philippians' sake. So by being persuaded of this necessity, he says, I am persuaded, convinced of this, convinced of this. Now how convinced was he? Because when we get to our verse this morning, we, he's still talking about whether this or whether that. When we get to verse 27, he says, connect yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent. Now, why is he still doing that if he was convinced in, uh, in verse 25? <laughs> okay, And so that to me is also a neat pattern, I think, with respect to what we do when we um, seek the will of God, when we come to our faith convictions, when we, uh, when we pursue uh, decision-making in the will of God, that even when we have come to that point of persuasion and we're absolutely convinced this is what God has for us to do, we proceed forward on a faith basis, then um, we rejoice when God steps in and overrules. <laughs> and God says, okay, yeah, you were convinced of that, but that's, that's not what I have for you. This is what I have for you. And it turned out while you were debating A and B, A and B, A and B, and losing sleep over A and B, you never even considered C right? Option C was the one the Lord had for you the whole, the whole time. And so we got all busy debating this or that, and then God uh, showed Himself faithful, which is the best part of all. And uh, we appreciate this. In any event, uh, that's what we dealt with under point five. And where we are presently now is under point six, an exhortation that Paul issues for the Philippians to apply until such time that he can be reunited with them. It's like a in the meantime kind of message. He says he's on his way, he's convinced he's going to be there shortly, but in the meantime, here's what you need to be doing. Only this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Only that, all right? As if that's a small thing. So this is, this is all I need you to do. And uh, it's like when you know your wife says, oh, by the way, can you do this? And she presents it like it's a little small thing, right? And, and yet you learn that it's you know, eight weeks later, you're still trying to get it done. That, uh, you know, that's the kind of language here when Paul says, only this, okay? It's a pretty big only. And uh, we looked at this on Wednesday. It's kind of fun when you get excited about an adverb. You get excited about monos, uh, which is the adjective for one or only, and then the adverb monos that speaks of this. And um, you realize that only is not always by itself, that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son. But guess what? We also are sons in Christ. And so um, Paul can say only, and he gets real good at it, and then he follows it up with five or six other things that he attaches to, uh, to the only. And he did that in Galatians 3 too. When he told the Galatians, he says, this one thing I want to find out from you, did you receive the Holy Spirit by works or by faith? And uh, you think, okay, that's the only thing you want to know. Then he adds to it a string of six or seven more additional questions that, uh, that, that are kind of built into that one question that he had. And uh, so as a, as a rhetorical device, it's, it's curious to me. And I don't know as a, maybe a, a personality quirk or a flaw on Paul's part, but the Holy Spirit inspired it and put it in the Scripture so it has value for us to, uh, to study it on that basis. Only, all right? And so we should uh, accept the only for what it is. If we're going to come up with a definition of the Christian way of life, well then this is it, only this. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy. And then spend the rest of your life learning what worthiness is, okay? And uh, spend the rest of your life being molded and transformed and growing and finding that there's components of unworthiness you never even thought about until the Holy Spirit spotlighted them and they get, they get addressed. And we'll talk about that when we talk about worthiness. Um, 
One other additional aspect here that we have to pay attention to is the political terminology for live or conduct. And it says conduct yourself. And it's, it refers to a manner of life, but it's not peripateo and it's not uh, other expressions that we might be more familiar with or more uh, expecting, all right? And so it's not uh, Zoe life and it's not Bios life, it's polituma, it's political life. And, uh, and it's, I think it's worthwhile uh, considering it on that basis, although by the time uh, you get into the church fathers and the uses there, we're going to see Diognetus this morning, um, by the time you get into the church fathers, by the second and the third century, um, this term was functionally no different than peripateo, to walk or, or to live. And it was kind of, it became a, a generic term to live. And that's curious to me. And I wonder, was it because of the doctrine? Was it because of the, the significance that, that polituamai uh, uh, as, a, as a verb or polites as a noun, polituma? as a noun, if, uh, if these expressions really had the great impact, I think they did, to remind Christians that we are citizens of heaven, that, uh, that this world is not our home. And so we have a political life that is a public life. And maybe public might be a good term to think of it uh, as well with respect to this. But the term polituamai is where we get the English word politics. comes from this. A, a, a polis is a city. A polites is a, is a, a citizen. A, a, not just a resident, but a contributing member of that city. Okay? It's not just where you happen to live or shelter, or sleep, or eat, or anything like that. Citizenship means active participation in the public life of that city, of that polis, and uh, the duties that come with that, the expectations that come with that, in defending the city, and supporting the city, and funding the city, and, uh, and operating at peace with fellow members of the city. So citizenship is a big deal. It was a big deal in the ancient world. It should be a big deal today, but it's uh, we're dealing with a lot of satanic lies and misdirection about citizenship and a, a whole desire that, well, you can live wherever you want to live and borders don't mean anything. And if you want to go there, go there. If you want to go there, go there. And it's not about going where you want to go. It's about participating in the polity, in the body politic uh, with your fellow citizens in, in, in what God would have for you to do. And so... Um, Anyway, I hope some of that comes out as well. And, and for the church of Philippi, this would have been a huge consideration because Philippi was a Roman colony. The citizens of Philippi were not Macedonian citizens, they were Roman citizens by virtue of, Mas- of Philippi being a Roman colony. All right. It's not like uh, we think of uh, we think of uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. We call those the Macedonian churches because geographically that was the region where they were located. And Paul traveled through that Macedonian region, uh, a region that had belonged to, to Macedonia before Rome conquered it. And uh, but but Philippi was not a Macedonian city. It was a Roman city on Macedonian soil. Does that make sense? And so founded by the, uh, the Romans, populated by Romans, uh, it was uh, settled veterans that, uh, that became the, the initial citizens of that city and, uh, and so forth. So when Paul says your citizenship is in heaven, Philippians is the, is the book that he puts that in, that uh, the Holy Spirit sends that message to this church for this reason. It has the biggest impact there, it, certainly far more than it would have had in Thessalonica or in, in Berea or Corinth or, or uh, Ephesus or some place like that. Anyway, uh, and so the idea of conducting yourself is what's expected. There's a Jewish uh, application of that in Acts 23.1. In Acts 23.1 where the idea of living or conducting your life is how it's translated, but it's uh, basically you can render this as uh, functioning in a citizenship, functioning in, in a larger body politic. And so Paul, looking intently at the council, this is his defense before the Sanhedrin, said, brethren, I have polituamide with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And it's rendered in the English as lived my life. But the verb is polituamide, all right? And, uh, and so this is speaking of operating within a body politic. 
And, uh, and that may be the, it's kind of verbose and clunky, but maybe it's the best way to fully express what Polytuomai is, is driving at. And so uh, if, if making his defense before the Sanhedrin, then that's going to include everything that is involved in being a patriotic uh, supporting member of the, of the Jewish people. So, uh, and he'll go on to describe how and, and what his credentials were and what the fact that no one could level an accusation against him because he was the champion of all Jewish legalists. <laughs> you know, the righteousness found by the law, blameless, and uh, had, a, had an unbelievable defense as far as the body politic of the Jewish people is concerned in, uh, in that respect. Anyway, uh, we went through on Wednesday, I won't repeat it, but uh, all the, the verses there in Luke and Acts and Hebrews with respect to citizenship vocabulary and the term the polites that refers to being a citizen. Paul says he's a citizen of Tarsus, a, uh, a not, not an insignificant city as, it's, uh, as it says there. Then we also have citizenship, the noun polituma in Philippians 3.20, which I think we're very familiar with. For our citizenship is in heaven. And, and keep in mind, when you're looking at Philippians 3.20, take a look at that real quickly here with me. In Philippians 3.20, the for our citizenship is, is an illustration. It's, it's, it's a comment Paul's making by way of, of illustrating the point he'd been making in the verses prior. Now there's two ways you can conduct yourself. There's two ways that you can walk. And here it is peripateo for walking. Um, but he says um, in verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So that's the good way to observe. Follow the right examples. You look around you and you say, hey, there's a, there's a believer that's doing it right. There's a believer that's living in the Word of God. There's a believer that's functioning in his local church. There's a believer that's pursuing gifts, ministries, and effects. I want to imitate that believer. Because there's another crowd. It says, many walk, of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So that's the other crowd, and you don't want to be imitating them. And yet that's uh, the, the tragedy of it is they set themselves up as a, as a pattern, as a paragon, and they accumulate followers, and there's the you know, crowds that, that go that direction. All right? And by the way, they're both in the same church. Okay, he's warning them about movements within the the community of faith in Philippi, and the reason why is it says they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, if those are unbelievers or pagans or people outside the faith community or you know what have you, then that verse makes no sense. All right. Of course their God is their appetite. Of course their end is destruction. Of course their glory is in their shame. Of course they set their minds on earthly things. It would be, it wouldn't be, how could it be any different for an unbeliever? How could it be any different for a pagan? See, I don't get shocked when a cat meows and a dog barks and, and, a, and a, a sinner sins, you know? When the unbeliever does what they do, that's not a shock to me. But when a believer does, what an unbeliever does. In other words, when someone who should know better, when someone who was not saved so they could pursue their lust, when someone that was redeemed is walking as if he's not, that we've got to uh, perk up and pay attention to. And we've got to be on guard against that. And we stop and we say, no, we're not going to follow that example. And uh, when your mind is not set where it's supposed to be, what does the Scripture tell us? Set your mind on the things above. Because far too many believers don't do that. We get distracted by this world and we're looking at problems and we're looking at this world and we're not looking at Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So which one do you want to follow? And uh, we got this example, we got that example, and uh, the, the bad example is the one that's setting their minds on earthly things. And then by way of explanation, Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven. And on that basis alone, that ought to tell us where our thinking ought to be, where our attention ought to be focused. We don't get all wrapped up over things that are happening here uh, in this world because we know, you know it's passing away. We're, we're waiting for the next. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, eagerly waiting, because it could be today, it could be this hour, okay? And uh, when He comes, at any moment now, He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. If we're still alive when that happens, then we never die. Our body gets transformed in that twinkling of an eye, and we get uh, caught up to be with the Lord in the air. And He's going to do this by the exertion of the power that He has to subject all things to Himself. All right? And uh, stay tuned for that because we've got studies on subjection coming up. Uh, he was seated at the Father's right hand. He was, all things were given to Him in subjection, but He has not yet subjected all things yet to Him. We don't yet see that yet in time. And uh, we're studying that in the Hebrews class right now. All right. Um, a couple of things I just want to share real quickly and then we'll move past this. There's a Bible knowledge commentary that has a good quote on this. And uh, I've made it repeatedly already. So, uh, I, so to avoid the charge of plagiarism, I'll show you my, my source. Um, the words conduct yourselves translates a political word, which would mean much to the Philippian believers. Literally, it means live as citizens. As polituamai, live as citizens. Because Philippi was a Roman colony, the Christian inhabitants of the city would appreciate Paul's use of that verb. Anyway, this is uh, Walvert and Zook in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. I appreciated that quite a bit. Also, the impact that this verse had in the early church, it's, it's curious to me how often it gets quoted in, in Clement and in, in uh, 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 Diognetus and a couple of other places in the church fathers. And I'm not going to read all of them to you, but I did want to read this one just for the sake of showing you, I think, the impact that it had. Um, get rid of that. There we go. And make it larger. All right. Now remember, this is not the Bible. This is not New Testament. This is not God-breathed and inspired. This is in the uh, first and second century after, or the second and third century after uh, Christ. But it shows you some of the earliest Christian writing, and it shows you how frequently they quote the New Testament, how they uh, are affected by the New Testament in making the applications that they make. And the preaching in particular on our citizenship was such that it, uh, I think it had tremendous ap- uh, impact even as early as 96 AD with the writing of 1 Clement. 1 Clement is probably older than Revelation. Okay, Doesn't belong in the Bible, but it was written before Revelation was written. And uh, it shows you the, the impact that it was having uh, very early. So um, let me back up because uh, I don't want to go to the beginning of the epistle. Just maybe to the beginning of the chapter here. All right. In the epistle to Diognetus, what we have here is a, is a Christian apology. We have somebody, a born-again believer, describing to an unbeliever uh, who we are, what we do, why we're not a threat to Rome, uh, why uh, no unbeliever ought to have any objections to any Christian church or any believer. Uh, we're, not, uh, we're not weird. We're not uh, strange. We're not dangerous. Okay? as far as that goes. And remember, uh, the Christians had already by now been blamed of several things. Nero blamed Christians for burning Rome, even though it was Nero himself that burned Rome, all right? And Jews were very happy to blame Christians because of uh, a lot of hostility there. The, the Gentiles didn't even know, they thought Christians was just another sect of Jews. They didn't know. And uh, so a lot of early conflicts uh, got, got wrapped up in this. Uh, but here in this epistle, let me just make it big enough where if you want, you can read along. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric lifestyle. Okay? Despite what you might think. <laughs> All right? There's no city somewhere that we say, this is Jesusville, and we only, it's only us that live there. And if you're not saved, you've got to go away. All right? We live in Austin and Pflugerville and Round Rock, and we're just everywhere, okay? And uh, as far as language and custom, well, it's the language of the, the land where we are, and the customs of the land where we are. Um, anyway, unusual dialect or eccentric lifestyle. This teaching of theirs has not been discovered by the thought and reflection of ingenious men, nor do they promote any human doctrine as some do. 
So in other words, it didn't come from Greek philosophy, it didn't come from some smart person that said, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's promote this new manner of life. Um, it came from God. All right, this is, uh, this is our blessing. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time they demonstrate the remarkable... the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. Okay, So we, we obtain a new citizenship by being believers. And we don't stop being Americans, we don't stop being Texans or whatever. But now we have the addition of that with new life in Christ and a citizenship that is in heaven. And so then that starts to make some slight distinctions that uh, particularly in directions of morality in directions of, of not sinning and in uh in other things as uh while we know the customs there there may be things we no longer participate in um as as it may be so um at the same time they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship they live in their own countries but only as aliens you know, I've been here all my life, but I feel like I don't belong here anymore. Okay? Uh, they participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. See? At the same time. This is uh, a neat uh, paradox that uh, this anonymous author, we don't know who wrote this, by the way, the anonymous Christian author is, uh, is explaining. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. Isn't that something? They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. If you want to think about it, the pro-life movement began in the first century. Okay? Very common in the Roman world, uh, you know, especially if you need a son as an heir to, uh, to expose uh, your offspring, the girls especially, but uh, weak and sickly boys and so forth. If if there was any indication that this child was uh, not going to serve your your purpose, you left it out at night, and and that's that was that was the mechanism. And uh, you left it out. You took it out to the woods, or you left it in the field, and it was called exposure. And uh, that's very common. Christians came up. Biblical Christianity came along and said, "No, we're not doing that." And they actually started taking in some of those exposed infants and, and uh, Christian numbers started swelling because pagans were having fewer and fewer children and Christians were having more and more children, interestingly enough. Um, they share their food but not their wives. Remember ancient Rome, okay? Uh, yeah, the, they were different, all right? They are in the flesh but they do not live according to the flesh, yeah, we still have sinful bodies, but we have a new standard that is the Holy Spirit. And we operate by means of the Holy Spirit, not our sin nature. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. Okay? That's word for word out of Philippians 3.10. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. We're not just you know, legalistic ritual law keepers, but in our hearts we are glorifying Jesus Christ by remaining subject to, subject to Caesar, subject to the king. We, have, we should be the best citizens that Caesar would ever dream of having. Um, they love everyone and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. <laughs> A lot of this has some allusions to 1 Corinthians. You might be picking up on some of the verses there. Um, they are put to death, yet they are brought to life. Well, that wouldn't make any sense to an unbeliever. You can imagine this, a letter like this, the kind of the impact it would have on the recipient reading this, thinking, oh, how does this work? They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they, are, they abound in, uh, in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are uh, glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. And all of that should shine forth as a testimony that there's something different about these people. They seem to have a perspective that, uh, that uh, nobody else has. 
They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. By the Jews, they are assaulted as foreigners. And by the Greeks, they are persecuted. Yet those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. In a word, and I like this too, moving on into chapter 6 here. In a word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. Now there's a metaphor for you. How do we, how do we as Christians, how do we bless our community, our state, our nation? All right. If you think of the United States as a political body, if you think about you know, the physical body of, uh, of our country, well then it's the Christians within the country that could be thought of as the soul. I don't know, it's, maybe it doesn't work for you, but I thought it was interesting. Um, and that goes on, that takes you down through chapter 6. He even uh, went so far as to describe the battle of carnality between the flesh and the, and the spirit, and how they fight against each other, and you want to stay in fellowship. I think this guy could have probably written our spirituality versus carnality book. For this is, as I said, no earthly discovery that was committed to them, nor some mortal idea that they consider to be worth guarding so carefully, nor have they been entrusted with the administration of merely human mysteries. On the contrary, the omnipotent creator of all, the invisible God himself, established among men the truth and the holy incomprehensible word from heaven and fixed it firmly in their hearts, not as one might imagine by sending to men some subordinate or angel or ruler or one of those who manage earthly matters or one of those entrusted with the administration of things in heaven, but the designer and creator of the universe himself by whom he created the heavens and by whom he enclosed the sea within its proper bounds." Anyway, this is remarkable. This author understood dispensations and understood the various stewardships that have come along from the Gentiles to the, to, uh, to the Jews, to the church. We, we do have a stewardship, but it was Christ himself that came. This is like a, a reworking of Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 in recognizing that it's the creator God of the universe. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so all of us that proclaim this gospel, we're representing him in, uh, in these things. Anyway, if you want more on that, let me know. And if you don't have access to this as a resource, let me know. You can probably find the text on the internet. By, uh, this came from, uh, I think, uh, the Perseus Digital Library has it if you don't have it. And, uh, or I can make a PDF of it and uh, get that for you. Diognetus, D-I-O-G-N-E-T-U-S. Epistle to Diognetus. Mm-hmm. All right, so conduct yourself. Live your political life. Live your public life. Live as a citizen. Function as a citizen in a manner worthy or worthily of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, now we've got to deal with the adverb for worthily. The, uh, the adjective is axios. The adverb is axios. All right? And so uh, you get to learn these things. Uh, axios, A-X-I-O-S, but it's an Omicron Sigma ending, the short O ending. When you lengthen your Omicron to a long O to the Omega, you turn Axios into Axios, and uh, Axios is the adverb. That's how you turn an adjective into an adverb. You lengthen the, uh, the Omicron, and that's what we have here. The adverb is only used six times, and so it'll be fairly quick for us to, to look through those. But it speaks of... Um, what I like is the fact that, that, like in English, we have our term axiom or axiomatic. Okay? An axiom is something that is uh, self-evident, it's, it's, it's right, it's, uh, and, and that's what axios speaks to. It speaks of something that is equal to. Think of it as an equal sign, that it is, it is, it is right, it is, it is true, it is appropriate. In fact, it's very similar to the proper and fitting terminology that we had uh, not too long ago. In Hebrews, we talked about it was proper to perfect the author of our salvation with sufferings. And so something that's axiomatic, something that's an axiom, is, is something that's right, something that's true, and really can be self-evident for anyone that wants to look at it. And uh, 
That's kind of the etymology behind axios. Anyway, the idea of equal. You put this on one side of a scale, what do you have on the other side of the scale? What would be equal? What would be uh, fitting so that it balances? And, uh, and that's the idea. If I'm going to walk worthily of the gospel, how does my political walk balance out the scales with the gospel of Jesus Christ? <laughs> okay. And we're not talking about earning or deserving it. No, not at all. We're talking about to be worthy of the gospel means it has to be by grace through faith. It has to be by the grace of God. It has to be for the, 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 the good pleasure of God the Father. It has to be for the glory of Jesus Christ. Anything short of that is, is not worthy of the gospel because that's what the gospel is, right? The gospel is a grace gospel. The gospel is, is uh, not something we could earn and deserve. And that's, that's to me, that's the biggest key of all. And, and we'll read these verses here in a moment. But the biggest key of all is I think we read, I, I do anyway, I read the word worthy and I think, ooh, I've got to work hard to measure up. And that's not axios, okay? The worthiness is not me trying to deserve something. The worthiness is me walking in grace because I don't deserve a thing. And if I walk, in a, if I walk by grace, then that is what is axios. That is what's worthy. Uh, human effort, merit, trying to deserve something, that is unworthy of the gospel. Legalism, trying to prove that I'm a better person than this person, that is unworthy of the gospel. What's worthy of the gospel? Being grace-oriented, being loving and forgiving towards one another. Uh, or, if I may, just read the verses that follow here. <laughs> All right. Um, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's worthy, okay? Because it's grace. It's absolute grace. All right. Uh, these things that follow are symptoms, not, uh, not uh, means. We're going to talk about that as well. Uh, we can't be worthy by doing a list of stuff. We, we walk worthy and then that list of stuff is expressed. It's a consequence, not a cause for worthiness. All right. So uh, Romans 16.2. These six uses of the adverb should be helpful for us. And then uh, we can branch out beyond that and actually see a, an etymology project on this. Romans 16. The famous uh, Phoebe, a deaconess. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Remember this? She was a deaconess at the church of Sancria. And she was traveling in Rome. She may very well have been the courier. She may very well have been the, the servant that, that, that transported the scroll from Paul's hand to the, to the Roman uh, readers. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deaconess of the church, which is at Sancria. It's the port city of Corinth on the eastern coast, uh, serving as the port city of Corinth. That you receive her in the Lord in a manner, axios, in a manner worthy of the saints. So what's worthy of the saints? Does that mean she's personally worthy? She's deserved it? Or the saints are personally worthy? If a, if a saint was to show up, how would you treat them? What, what is the nature of this worthiness? But and yet it's an adverb describing the manner in which the Romans were encouraged to receive her. In the Lord, in a manner worthy of the saints. And that you help her. That's like a second activity beyond receiving her in a manner worthy. And that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. All right, so here's, a, here's a, maybe a, a confusion because some people read, or I used to, read the last part of verse 2 and say, oh, well, that's why she deserves it. Because she's been a helper. Because she's done good things. She's been a faithful deaconess and she's done a lot of good stuff and she's, she's, uh, been, she's been a helper of Paul and she's, wow, she's accumulated a lot of brownie points so now she deserves for me to, uh, to, to be nice to her, to welcome her, to, to host her, to, to, you know, whatever. And then if I treat her really well, then that's going to go on my ledger. Uh, those are going to be my brownie points. <laughs> and then later on, I'll be able to hold somebody else and say, hey, look, I did this, I did this. I, uh, I treated Phoebe great when she was in Rome. 
So now what do I get? All right. No. <laughs> okay. If, uh, if, that's, if you start to think that way, think again. That's not worthy of grace. That's not worthy of the saints. That's not worthy of the gospel. That's not worthy of Christ. The only thing that's worthy is grace. That we have grace towards one another. That's axios. That's worthy. And maybe the biggest obstacle to understanding worthiness is the English word worthiness. <laughs> the English word for worth. Okay, Because the, the value of anything is whether it's done in grace or not. The value in anything is, and when, when you study the, the, the gold, silver, precious stones on the one hand, wood, hand, stubble on the other hand, what is it that makes the one one versus the other? Okay? Grace. The mental attitude. The, uh, the perspective there. All right. So uh, receive her in a manner worthy of the saints. You might think of this and say, well, wait a minute, weren't the saints sawn in two and stoned and persecuted and crucified? And, and you know, which one of the prophets did your fathers not uh, persecute? <laughs> so receiving in a manner worthy of the saints, wait a minute, what are we saying here? No, I think it's, it's a call for grace. Also, keep a, just jot a short little list down on objects for worthiness. Because the object we have in, in Philippians is the gospel. The object that we have here in Romans is the saints. Okay, And maybe the best thing to consider with respect to the saints is those are the set-apart ones, those are the redeemed, the body of Christ. We're all saints if, as, as believers in Jesus Christ. And so what is, what is the value of that? What is the value of one for whom Christ died? Well, to Christ, the value was his own life. For Christ, it was serving, serving us on the cross. So receive her in a manner worthy of the saints. How about Ephesians 4.1? And these prison epistles are interesting. From Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, they're all largely saying the same thing, just slightly different twists, slightly different vocabulary. So in Ephesians 4.1, it's a manner worthy of the Lord. I'm sorry, of the calling with which you have been called. So therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk, and I believe that's our peripateo verb, walk in a manner axios, worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So walking worthy of the gospel, walking worthy of our calling, is that the same thing? Are they different? How do I distinguish between those? All of this is included in worthiness. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That sounds an awful lot like Philippians chapter 1. Okay, A lot of overlap there. Same thing we're going to see in Colossians. A lot of overlap there in how we conduct ourselves. These things that are worthy. Um... Anyway, being diligent, being diligent. So um, it's not easy. If it requires diligence, does that mean it's automatic? <laughs> no. Diligence means you've got to be diligent. You've got to be careful to do it. You've got to be on your guard because laziness will keep you from doing it. Worthiness takes work. Of course, Philippians 1.27 is where we are this morning. We've seen that already. Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, the gospel of Christ. And again, the, the, the things that are being described there that I will uh, hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the, faith, uh, for the faith of the gospel. Very similar to the unity that's expressed in Ephesians 4. It's a concept that, that comes out again and again in these, in these uh, parallel epistles. It's curious to me what was going on in Paul's missionary journey, third missionary journey as he's writing these prison epistles because it seems like he's hitting every church with a very similar message related to worthiness and related to unity. How about Colossians? Colossians 1.10. And this is uh, a church he'd never been to. and not been to Colossae. He knew some of the people. They had uh, mutual acquaintances, but he had never been there. But he'd heard about them. Epaphras had been one that had taught them. And so in Colossians 1.9, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, 
we have not ceased to pray for you. When you learn that there's a new church somewhere, you learn that, hey, there's a ministry here, and you first learn about them, man, that's exciting. Write that down. Start praying for them. We have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So we're, we're happy there's a church there. I hope they're growing. hope they're growing up. hope they're learning the Scriptures. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So here's another object of worthiness. We have uh, of the gospel, of our calling, and here it is, worthy of the Lord. We also had in Romans, we had worthy of the saints. Um, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It takes diligence, but what else does it take? Growing up. You've got to learn. You've got to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. If you're not growing in, in your study of the Word of God, how can you possibly walk in a manner worthy? You don't have the first clue what worthiness even is. You start to substitute your own ideas. Well, it seems right to me. And uh, then the next thing you know, you've created your own legalism or you're following somebody else's legalism. You're not pursuing the will of God. Anyway, it's a purpose clause, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in every respect, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It goes on all the way down to verse 12, actually, in descriptions of what happens here when you're walking worthy. Strengthen with all power, according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Okay? So there we have it. And, and if, if each one of us is pursuing this worthiness, how does it multiply? How does it come together? When you've got, you know, you got a grace-oriented believer, you've got two grace-oriented believers, you've got three grace-oriented believers, think about a grace-oriented local church. That's all walking worthy, that is all defined by grace. Yeah, there's unity there, of course. How about 1 Thessalonians? And then we have one that's non Pauline, but 1 Thessalonians 2 12. First Thessalonians 2 12. You know? It's interesting, when somebody shows up and you don't know who they are and you don't know what they want, there's a natural uh, human suspicion, <laughs> okay? And then even beyond a human suspicion, uh, spiritually speaking, you need to have your eyes open and be on the alert for wolves, and that's what shepherding is about, and that's why you have, um, you have a discernment about, uh, about what you're doing. And so Paul reminds them about how what, what the circumstances were like when he first arrived in town. Because he came to Thessalonica right after he'd been uh, run out of Philippi. And that's what he's, uh, he's describing here. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. And so they would remember that. This was written shortly after his departure from Thessalonica. This is written shortly in the, in the weeks after that. And reminding them of what they, what they knew about those circumstances. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. In fact, I think this is largely similar to what we just read with the, apostle of, to, uh, the epistle to Diognetus. Explaining, look, we didn't make this up. It didn't come from man. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And you guys ought to know this. <laughs> uh, we're being faithful to God. God gave us this message. We're delivering you the message God wants us to deliver. And it means we get abused. You know, the, the jail experience in Philippi and then the, experience, the rejection here in Thessalonica, they got driven out of town. But then notice what he says in verse 5. But we never, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, and so forth. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And so that he was there with right motivations, and he wasn't ripping them off, and he wasn't there to milk them for their money. All right. Anyway, all of this is headed down to verse 12. Um, 
Verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. And by stirring them up here in this way of remembrance, he's getting them to their, uh, to their application. Like I say, when we get down to verse 12, verse 10 says, you are witnesses, so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay? This is the purpose. This is the objective. This is why we minister the Word of God. Not, not so that you know more. Knowing is a means to an end, but not the end. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, all right? We teach the Scriptures so that we can know the Scriptures, but again, where does that take us to? Knowing the will of God with all spiritual wisdom and insight. Why? So that we can walk in a manner worthy. Ignorant believers can't walk worthy. But when you've had the equipping, when you've had the teaching, now it's on you. Are you going to apply? Are you going to live it out? Is it going to transform you? Are you going to let it transform you so that you do walk in a manner worthy? And that's what we see here. Worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. So that's, that's again, that has to be grace. Are you going to be equal to the glory of God without grace? Are you going to try to earn and deserve the kingdom of God without grace? No, of course not. The God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory, that's the worthiness that we're supposed to walk in. Finally, the one non-Pauline usage is uh, 3 John. 3 John and verse 6. Don't say 3 John chapter 1 verse 6. There's only one chapter. It's 3 John verse 6. <coughs> and um, a sentence beginning in verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. Remember, in Christ there are no strangers. We're brethren. We, uh, and, and we have a blessing to be able to meet someone that maybe they were a stranger the split second we met them, but then after that, oh, you name the name of Christ, you're my brother. And you begin then to establish the fellowship that you can uh, on that basis. And that they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. And so that's our same adverb there. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. All right, those that are serving, missionaries, evangelists, those that are traveling, we ought to be in support of such men. Therefore, we ought, to, it says verse 8, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. And so I may not be going to whatever mission field this guy's going to, but he is, and I can be his fellow worker as I support him, as I help him along his way, as I host him while he's here. And, uh, and so forth, in a manner worthy of God. This is our privilege. We get to do this in the body of Christ. We get to serve one another in this way. We're not taking anything from the Gentiles, taking anything from unbelievers. All right, now beyond the, um, beyond the uh, adverb, as I say, there's several other forms. And so if you do um, a word study in Logos, you've probably seen this before, and I've recommended it a couple of times because I think sometimes a, uh, a study that's so short that it doesn't give you the full flavor on things, you want to go beyond that. Um, and so when you do a word study in your software, um, if, if you have the software, when you do your word study, you realize that that word is not alone. More often than not, it sits within a a, uh, an etymology, it sits within a family of other expressions. And so you'll see a panel, and I'll show you in a moment where you can pull that up. You'll see in a panel something that looks like this. And, uh, and so you have the, um, you see the little uh, square root, mathematical square root symbol right there? And that's a little icon they selected for the verb root, okay? Um, but the root behind axios is axios. And so we've been looking at axios here. That's why the dot is there. We've been looking at axios, the adverb. The adverb is worthily. The adverb describes uh, is a, a modification of a verb. It's something that you're doing. And so you want to do this thing that you're doing, you want to do worthily. 
receiving somebody or walking or something else that you're doing, you want to do that worthily. That's the way you use that as an, as an adverb. And there are six uses of that adverb, but guess what? There's actually a verb, axiao, that means to consider worthy, and that's got seven uses. That would be worth looking at as well. And then above that, you've got the adjective axios, uh, the adjective worthy that's used 41 times. And so the adverb may only be used six, where it's modifying a verb, but the adjective is used 41 times. The adjective modifies what? Modifies a noun or modifies, uh, you know, so we've got more uses there for something that's worthy. And then we have some compounds. There's kata, kat axiao, with a compound of kata in front of axiao. And anaxios, uh, unworthy. That's the opposite of axios, is anaxios, unworthy. And that also has an adverb to uh, walk in an unworthy manner. So anaxios becomes anaxios. If um, you want to do these yourself, I recommend them. The um, Looks like that. Before you even get there, if you just want to open up... By the way, anyone can do this. You don't have to know Greek to pull this, this wheel up, which is, which is amazing. The um, Philippians one twenty seven. So conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. And all you got to do is just, just right-click that word worthy, okay? Come down here to your lemma, and it tells you that it's your lemma, axios, and do your word study. And that's what's going to bring up that, that wheel there on your left. In a manner worthy. Nope, clicked the wrong thing, sorry. Worthy, axios, word study. There you go. And as soon as your word study comes open, you'll notice you get that highlighting in your Bibles that uh, your little uh, research assistant is sitting on your shoulder and says, aha, you opened up your word study to Axios. You must be doing a study on Axios. Let me, let me show you where you're going to find that in, uh, in your English Bible, in your Greek Bible. Okay? And uh, this idea of conduct yourself. Polituomai, do a word study there. And uh, again, your research assistant is going to color that as well and say, okay, you're studying this now. I'm going to show you those things. And it grabs your attention and it helps, helps you focus on what you're looking at. Likewise, um, you're doing your study here in Oxios and, and uh, you open up your lexicon. And so you, you open up your... Uh, why did that go over there, I wonder? That's most curious. So you open up your BDAG lexicon and you're looking at uh, the vocabulary and you're looking at the definition and you're looking at the usages and you're looking at everything that a lexicon, a dictionary will take you through on Oxios. And notice what it did there, it just colored Philippians 1.27 because that's where your Bible is open. Your little research assistant wants you to make sure you see, your eye can spot that uh, Philippians 1.27 reference right there so you don't lose it in the midst of what's otherwise a very large paragraph. It's amazing to me. I, I think it's fun to be saved in this, in this generation, to be a pastor in this uh, century. Can you imagine that? Yes, sir. No kidding. Bible only in all your research. Okay. Mm-hmm. It has changed a lot, that's right. And by the way, everything I just did in the span of three minutes would have taken 45 minutes in old school, all right? Because you'd have had your Bible open and then you'd have gone over to your shelf and you'd have pulled out your Greek New Testament and you'd have had that open, which is page flipping until you get to the right verse. And then you'd have gone over to your lexicon, you'd pull that out and more page flipping until you get to the right verse. And then you're reading a very long article. That one's not so long. And, and then you're scanning, scanning, trying to find, well, where does it mention Philippians 127 anyway? And uh, struggle to find it. Anyway, James Strong's took 20 years to do his, his lexicon. And uh, now we just scan it in, in microseconds. And it's, it's, uh, it's a blessing to us. So remember, to whom much is given shall much be required. And that's, uh, that's where our accountability comes in.
Anyway, when we get down here underneath the translation wheel, you come down here to your root panel, and this is our root panel right there. And that's why I made, the, I made the slide from that root panel right there. And if there's any one of those that you also want to pursue, just click on it and it'll bring it up and, uh, and take you to, uh, to those verses as well. All right? I'm out of time. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. We ask for your hand of blessing upon all that we've studied, Father, that when we leave here we will have recollection of these principles, that we would review these verses, that we would restudy our notes and and then uh, prayerfully consider, Father, the applications that, we, uh, that you are calling for us to make in, uh, in different things day by day, moment by moment, that we stop and ask ourselves, wait a minute, is this worthy? Is this a walk that's worthily? And so, Father, uh, open our eyes to see the worthy and unworthy uh, in what we're doing day by day. We want to be worthy, Father, so uh, make that happen. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.